Morning. Morning. I want to let you in, maybe at the beginning here, on a, on a pastor's, I'll give you a little inside look at a pastor's predicament. He's getting sick on a Saturday. And he's supposed to preach the next day. And he's all prepared to preach and everything. I remember those days, and uh, there were times you wondered, okay, what should I do? I'm feeling a little something in the throat. Uh, is it going to get worse, or should I wait? Maybe I'll be okay. And it starts getting worse, and it starts getting worse. Before you know it, you got to call somebody at the last minute to ask if they could fill in for you. And that's what Pastor Paul did. He fell sick yesterday. And uh, he asked me if I could fill in for him and preach on a topic known as the Great Commission. Apparently, he's beginning a, a series that's going to begin, um, I guess I'm kicking it off, on the call to discipleship. And what better uh, way to start that out than with the Great Commission? It's, uh, would you please open your Bibles to it? It's found in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And it's found in the last three verses of Matthew 28. These are final instructions that our Lord has given to his disciples. It says the 11 uh, were there with him. And not only were these uh, instructions given to the disciples to carry on, but they're also for us today, for the church of Jesus Christ. And he gave these uh, these. Uh, Instructions prior to him ascending back into heaven. He's just risen from the grave. He um, appeared on several occasions to the disciples. But before he appears, he wants them to follow uh, uh, this final command that are found in the last three verses, verses 18, 19, and 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is commonly known as the Great Commission. The Great Commission. And if you were to sum up the Great Commission, uh, you can sum it up in just two words in verse 19. Make Disciples. Make disciples. And the disciple, just to put it very simply to you, we'll look a little more into this, I'm sure, as, we, as this series goes on. Uh, but a disciple, just to put it simply, to, uh, uh, is just a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, a learner of Jesus Christ. The task of the Great Commission, in a nutshell, is to proclaim Jesus Christ to the spiritually lost, to, to invite them to come to faith in Christ due to his atoning work on the cross and then to equip them equip them to become devoted followers of Jesus Christ that's the great commission that we're called to do that's the primary purpose of the church of Jesus Christ now in contrast to that if you were to take a survey if we were to take a survey and people in general of what they think is the primary purpose of the church we'd get an assortment of things I know a couple of the top things that would be assortment of answers. One would be a primary purpose of the church, some people think, is to feed the poor. They kind of view the church as a humanitarian organization. 
Then there's others that kind of look at the church. They should be like a social club for community, relationships, and doing things together. Now, of course, all those things have their place. The church should have compassion for the, for the poor. The church is a place to, for community, getting a sense of community. But it's not the primary purpose of the church. The primary task of the church, again, could be summed up in two words. Make disciples. Now, it's one thing that we learn through observation is that if you can get a group of people together, and at the beginning they have a well-defined purpose, an objective that they want to accomplish, but yet over time they can lose sight of that objective, can't they? And the church is no exception to that. And that's why we always put in our bulletin, I don't know if you've noticed, but always in our bulletin, our mission statement. And we also have a well-defined philosophy of ministry. Our mission statement is summarized like this, to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. To glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our primary calling as a church, every church. The Great Commission really is the greatest task ever given to man. It's the greatest task there is. You'll never give yourself to a greater cause than the Great Commission. No matter what you do in life, no matter what your job is, secular job or whatever you want to call it, that's secondary to the Great Commission. That's always top priority in our minds. Nothing else is going to have a greater impact for for eternal good. Nothing else is going to be eternally rewarding as the Great Commission. And nothing else glorifies God than seeing a lost, hell-bound sinner come to faith in his son, forgiven of their sins, and transformed from the dominion of darkness to the dominion of light. Hallelujah. And you know, this isn't just for pastors, it's not just for missionaries. Every believer, every one of us who call ourselves a follower of Jesus Christ is called to the Great Commission. And it gives us really special meaning. It gives us special significance. It actually gives us a vitality to life. That we have a a purpose, an eternal purpose that's beyond everything else. You're called by the Son of God to do your part in the most meaningful, the most transforming task in all human history to make disciples of Jesus Christ. But when you think about this, when you really think deeply about it, it's a pretty monumental task, isn't it? It's a pretty daunting task as well. It's not only the greatest task in the world, but it's also the most overwhelming task in the world, if you think deeply about it. And I think one of the first things that comes to our mind is the fact that people in general in general, are indifferent towards Jesus Christ and becoming more so. Some are even hostile to Jesus Christ, and that seems to be becoming more so as well. So it could be a very fearful thing, can it? And it could be very intimidating to share the gospel with unbelievers. And the devil and the world we live in today wants to silence our witness 
for Christ. And that's why our Lord, not only does he give us this great commission, but in this passage of scripture, he also provides for us a provision so that we'd be able to keep it. And surrounding this great commission, what we see here is a not only a great commission, but a great claim and a great promise. The great claim is seen in verse 18. Look at it again with me, if you would. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. We have our Lord's own authority to make disciples. That's about as high as of authority as you can get, right? So before giving the Great Commission, he establishes, first of all, his absolute authority. Otherwise, that task, I'm sure, would have seemed very impossible to those 11 disciples that were standing there. Wow, okay. He ascends into heaven. How do we go about this? Maybe personally in your life, has there ever been a time in your life that you said to yourself, you know, I I need to share my faith with so-and-so. I need to share my faith with so-and-so, but you never do because of fearfulness or intimidation. I think we can all identify with that, right? And one way, I think, to overcome fear, one way to overcome intimidation of sharing the gospel with unbelievers is by realizing the authority that we have in Christ for doing so. It's this great authority, brothers and sisters, that you and I share the gospel with the spiritually lost and the unbelieving people. We have the right before God to share the gospel upon the authority of Jesus Christ himself. In fact, that's why that first church, the first uh, century church, made such a widespread impact on their generation. They, They faced a lost They faced a hostile world that just crucified Christ, who did good for several years. And on the basis of this authority, they shared the gospel and they shook a world. And we can share the gospel, not only in a faraway land, but also in our little world, in our own land, our own hometown, our neighbor, co-worker an associate, a family member. I think understanding this biblical church truth helps us to overcome fear and helps us to overcome the fear of sharing our faith. Now, when I say this, let me put a little bit of a, of a um, balance on this. We don't want to pigeonhole people. It doesn't mean that we're to be rash doesn't mean that we're to be belligerent in sharing the gospel, nor does it mean that we're to force the gospel on anyone that doesn't want to hear it. Jesus says, don't cast your pearls before swine. So we're not to be rashly bold. We're actually to be wisely bold in sharing our faith. As Christians, we're really to be really model citizens. We should be model citizens. We should honor our human authorities and human institutions. But you know, if there ever comes a time when human authority or a human institution prohibits the church from proclaiming the gospel, 
then we have to respectfully disagree and disobey that human authority, whatever the consequences may be. Because of our Lord's authority supersedes all human authority. After our Lord ascended into heaven, we read in Acts chapter 3 that Peter Peter preached the gospel in Jerusalem and 3,000 Jews became saved. 3,000 in one day became followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, the majority of Christians, the first several months, were Jewish. And shortly after he proclaimed the gospel again, several thousand more came to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, this upset the Jewish authorities. So they called him in, they arrested him, they threatened him, and they warned him not to speak anymore in Jesus' name. And listen to how Peter boldly but respectfully responded. We cannot but speak the things which we, are, which we have seen and heard. And he kept preaching because he was under a higher mandate by God himself. So they arrested him again. And they told him not to speak in Jesus' name. But again, he boldly but respectfully said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So brethren, we have the right to speak up for God based upon Jesus' authority. Which brings us to the Great Commission itself. We see it in verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So we see here the Lord's very clear instructions. And there's three things I want to point out here. There's three imperatives Three imperatives here that are very important to this Great Commission. They really make it up. And the first imperative, again, is just is to make disciples. Make disciples. Now, when you read this, keep in mind, the Great uh, this is not simply making converts. It's more than evangelism. It includes evangelism. You can't make disciples without evangelism. But the, the, the Great Commission involves more than evangelism. Sometimes we limit it mainly to evangelism. We're to make the, the disciples, which, which includes winning souls, but it means instructing the new believer, instructing them to grow in the faith. Colossians 2.7 says it this way. It says that we're to be rooted and built up in Christ and established in the faith. Now, this is so important to see that I want you to see what Jesus says about this elsewhere. I want you to join me. I think that probably perhaps the the best single description of a disciple is found in John chapter 8. Would you join me there? John chapter 8 and verse 31. It's probably the best single description of a disciple given by Jesus himself. 8.31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, 
If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. In other words, a disciple does what? A disciple abides in God's word. And to abide means what? It means to maintain a contact for a sustained of, in something for a sustained period of time. In this case, contact with the Word of God for a sustained period of time, all our life, really. And the idea here is that a, a, a disciple of Jesus Christ has a very serious commitment to Scripture, to live according to the Word of God. And unfortunately, there's way too many Christians that don't abide in God's word. They really miss the boat. They don't abide in God's word. And they're just so easily swayed by the philosophies of secular culture. More so today than ever. I remember, I'm old enough to remember Ronald Reagan when he was president. It was during the Cold War. In fact, he was the president that kind of ended the Cold War with the Soviet Union. He shared with the American people a concept that was known as SDI. Anybody ever heard of SDI? Nobody's that old? <laughs> Strategic Defense Initiative. I'm old, I just look good. <laughs> My wife said to say that. <laughs> Strategic Defense Initiative. The concept was that there'd be an electric dome over the United States to protect us of any missiles that would, that would come in. It would just bounce off that electric shield. Sounded pretty good, didn't it? And you know, in the same way, we Christians have what I call a BDI. Not an SDI, but a BDI, a Biblical Defense Initiative. It's a biblical defense initiative that helps us sort out truth from air, from destructive air. We need a BDI to deflect off the air and, and not to absorb the harmful cultural mindset into our thinking. And the question is, how are you doing here? Are you growing? Are you abiding in Christ's word? Are you growing? in your knowledge of God. In fact, that's why years ago we launched a small group, Bible studies. Early on at the beginning of this church, it was a means for people to grow in the discipleship process. If you've never committed yourself to one, I really want to encourage you to do so. They're meant to help you grow, to abide in the Word of God to grow in your knowledge of Scripture, to grow as a follower of Jesus Christ. So that's one thing. Since we're in John, let's look at another statement that Jesus makes concerning uh, um, discipleship in John. Turn, uh, if you would, uh, forward to chapter 15. I want to look at two verses there that add to this description of a disciple. first verse is what Jesus says in verse 4. Again, he says, abide in me, 
Abide in me and I in you. And then he says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. You can't not bear fruit unless you're abiding in Christ. And then drop down to verse 8. He he says, by this, my father is glorified. This is how God's glorified. I told you, the greatest way God is glorified is by making disciples. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so what? Prove to be my disciples. Jesus says that a disciple bears fruit. What is fruit? Christ-like character. It's Christ-like character. The idea here is that a, a, a disciple is not static. A true disciple reach, re, uh, receives that spiritual nourishment that's needed by abiding in God's word. That nourishment that's going to produce fruit, little by little, throughout the course of life. And the question is, what kind of fruit are you bearing? Are you growing in Christ-like character? We should not be content in living a shallow Christian life. That's the first imperative. The second imperative, he says, is baptizing them. Baptizing them, referring to water baptism. Water baptism is so important. It's a command. Jesus commands water baptism, and he commands it because, you know what it is? It's really a public uh, declaration. It's a testimony. You're, You're publicly declaring that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm identifying with his death. I identify with his burial. I identify with his resurrection. That's why we immerse. There's the old you. The new you is the old you has been buried. You sink into the water, and the new you has come up with newness of life. That's what it symbolizes. In fact, it's really an appropriate time. Those of you that are going to be going to the class that we have, and if you haven't signed up for that class, I would encourage you to do so. <clears throat> That's uh, next week, prior to the service. It's appropriate time to really invite friends, to invite family for that time of baptism. They can see your commitment to Christ and your testimony of his saving grace. Notice something here. Notice Jesus says that we're to baptize what? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think this is probably done to recognize something, to recognize the the gracious involvement that the triune God has in our salvation. It's really amazing. The Father caused the sinner to repentance. He provides the atoning sacrifice of his Son. The Son lays down his life to pay for the debt of our sin. And it's the Holy Spirit who draws an unbeliever through personal faith through the atoning work of Christ on the cross. 
Our eternal salvation is a gracious work of a triune God. The third imperative is teaching them. Teaching them. I want you to notice again what Jesus says in verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now I want you to note a couple of things here, okay? First, I want you to note, notice here that Jesus is very specific in what we're to teach. You see it? He's very specific in what we're to teach. We are to teach what he has commanded. So, in other words, we're not simply to teach our own ideas. We're not simply to teach our own opinions on things or the philosophy of man. We're to teach what he has commanded. And in fact, he says that we're to teach all that he commanded. You see that? All that he commanded. And you guys know what the word all means, right? What does it mean? That's right. You know. Thought I was gonna, some of you thought I was going to hear someone deep. We're not to leave anything out, in other words. All that, I, that he's commanded. We're not to teach only something that we like or something that's popular all the time or just the positive things of the Bible, and there's many of them in there. It's tempting, isn't it, to eliminate some of the hard things in the Bible and kind of water the Bible down if it's objectionable to our culture. And the motivation for doing so could be good. They don't want to offend people, but the outcome's not good because that type of strategy, only thing it does is produce shallow believers. There's some hard things that need to be taught from Scripture. We can be tempted to emphasize grace without judgment, love without truth, salvation without obedience, and heaven without hell. And secondly, notice that Jesus is very specific about what we're to teach people to do. He's very specific of what we're to teach people to do with what we're teaching them. What are we to do? What are you to do with what I'm teaching you right now? What are you to do with when Paul teaches here every, every Sunday or you? or your small group, and so on. He says that we are to teach them to what? Observe. Now, that word observe just simply means put into practice. Put it into practice. Put it into practice. Put into practice all these things that he's command. Put it into practice. We're not, we're not simply to be people with academic head knowledge, and there's a lot of Christians with academic head knowledge, where the help lead them in faithful obedience to Jesus Christ and his word. And that, that really should be one of the primary goals of our small groups. It's also the primary goal of our biblical counseling ministry to help struggling Christians put into practice the truth of God's word into the context of everyday life. There's one more point, a great promise, but before we go into that great promise, 
Maybe I should just pause here a moment and just ask a few soul-searching questions. Have you placed faith in Jesus Christ in his atoning work on the cross? Have you ever come to a place in your life that you recognized you were a sinner in need of the Savior? You realize your sinful condition before holy God. And have you repented of your sins and consciously placed saving faith in Christ? If not, that's where you need to begin to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you've done so, then a follow-up question would be, have you publicly declared your faith in Christ through water baptism? It's a matter of obedience to Christ's command. And another question to ask, are you doing your part in the broader work of the Great Commission? We all have a part to play. And by that I mean, are you sharing your faith with others? Are you praying for the salvation of the spiritually lost that you come in regular contact with? If not, let me give you something that you could put into practice this week. Simple. Think of a person you come in contact with regularly. Begin to pray for that person over a period of time. And then pray for yourself. Pray that God will give you an opportunity to speak to that person. And when you pray for them, pray that God... It softens their hearts and opens their hearts to the gospel. And then <clears throat> I believe God will give you an opportunity to be able to speak to that person. And prayerfully, they would be more receptive. And one more question. Are you doing what you can to support this church as we continue to carry out, as a body of believers, carry out this great commission. And that could include prayer support. That includes financial support. That includes being personally involved in some way in, in the ministry of the church. Since the time of Christ, when he first gave that commission to those 11 apostles, every generation of believers is to be involved in fulfilling the Great Commission. It can't die with one generation, and it hasn't for all these generations until Christ returns. And that leads us to one more wonderful truth that we find in the very last half of verse 20. I call it the Great Promise. See the Great Claim? Great Commission, then the Great Promise, in the last half of verse 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, we have our Lord's assuring presence with us. He didn't give us this tremendous task of the Great Commission and just simply slap us on our back and says, hey, go ahead, go get to it. Send us on our way, wishing, wish you success. He wants us to know he's with us. 
When we step out in obedience in the Great Commission, he's with us. I think this church is part of the proof of that. He's with us as we continue to proclaim the gospel. And I want you to also know it. He doesn't say that he's with us some of the time. He says he's with us when? Always. All of the time. And he wants to make sure that we know that this is just as true for us today as it was for the disciples back then. He's with us always. Bearing witness to that which is true. He promises to be with us all the way to the end of the age, until he returns. It's a glorious promise, isn't it? This is a great, everlasting promise, and it's wonderfully true, isn't it? It's through his divine authority and presence, this great claim of authority, and this great promise of his abiding presence, that we're able to, as a church, to carry out the Great Commission for Christ and his cause. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that you have given, made a provision for us in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That you just didn't leave us to our old sinful ways, but you are calling out a people. And you are using us. You are using our church and all believers of all time to reach others with the Great Commission. Make disciples. We thank you that you've given us such great meaning, significance, and purpose in life that supersedes anything else that we may do. Burn that, I pray, into our hearts and minds, that it will be always on the forefronts of our thoughts each and every day, I pray, for your eternal glory. Amen.